Luke chapter 11. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn there. The Gospel of Luke chapter 11. We are continuing through the Gospel of Luke and just verse by verse making our way through the record given to us, this orderly account and this careful and Holy Spirit-inspired record of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have come to Luke chapter 11. We began last Lord's Day, and I said to you that verses 1 through 13 are altogether dealing with the subject of prayer, and my plan was to get through that in four addresses, four messages. Well, I already have to make a change there because it's going to take at least one more as we get to the, the petitions given, the form of prayer given by the Lord. And I, I, I'm resisting so much to not deal with each part of the Lord's Prayer and have a series on the Lord's Prayer within our series in the Gospel of Luke. So I'm doing my best, I promise you. I'm trying to resist, but we trust we're being led by the Spirit in all these thoughts and musings and our study as well. So Luke chapter 11, last time we read the opening 13 verses, we will abbreviate tonight and just read the opening four verses. So Luke chapter 11, verse 1, let's hear the word of the living God. It came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive every one that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Ending a reading at that section of this portion of God's Word. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord, beloved. And you pray. You pray for the Lord's help. You pray for a word for you, just something, something to rest in, to receive from the Lord for the profit of your soul. God, we do ask for help. We are always in need of help. And I, I fear at times that I think I can get through this, and I'm not as dependent on Thee as I need to be. Help me, Lord. Help me to really sense my utter powerlessness. And even in these moments, I cast myself upon Thee, Please give me the Holy Spirit, thy insight, thy wisdom, and may the words be with power to edification and salvation. Be especially with those families watching on at home and children even struggling to hear the Word of God. Give, give help there, we pray. So come now, Lord Jesus, stand in our midst. We ask for thy honor and glory. 
Amen. Upon reading the language of verses 2, 3, and 4, I imagine that the vast majority here this evening will immediately be familiar with these words. The Lord's Prayer, certainly at one point in history, may have been the most familiar passage to all those nations and those in nations strongly influenced by Christianity. And perhaps is the most popular or well-known prayer in all the world. Many have argued that it covers in seed form all aspects and all categories of prayer. And having already put this language of prayer before the world in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, it appears that the disciples didn't quite grasp it or at least the significance of it, or perhaps thought to themselves that something more was needed if they were ever to pray like the Lord Jesus Christ. On that point, I might say what I said last time, that, that they, were, they were missing the issue here, and, and that the Lord Jesus, in one sense, hadn't taught His disciples as John had taught His disciples. And there's a sense in which that isn't entirely correct. This has been brought up by the Lord. Matthew 6, it is clearly there. But at the same time, the truth, I think, is underlined that the disciples weren't quite ready, as in the case for many of us, when we're not in a frame to learn, we feel to learn. We need to feel the weight. We need to long and aspire to grow and learn. And that's the best preparatory frame to learn anything. You know that. If you're asked to give yourself to a subject or to a project that you are reluctant to do, you will not engage in it as you ought, and your heart will not be in it, and what you need to learn probably won't be learned the way that it ought to be learned. So the disciples haven't quite grasped all that they need to know about prayer, that is clear, and they come asking then the Lord to teach them to pray as John also taught his disciples. And and so, again, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week if you want to get our remarks on verse 1, but the Lord brings them back to this same form, puts before them the same language. He puts what seems so simple. It says, basically, when you pray, making the assumption that they will pray, God's people will be a praying people We're not to be absent of prayer. Prayer is assumed to those that know God. The evidence that they know God is that they pray. Often in Scripture, when it is referring to those that know God, it says those that seek His face, that's how they're identified. It's not said that they're saved or they're converted, though that language is perfectly fine. But those that are saved or converted are marked by those that seek His face. They pray. So it is assumed that His people will pray. And so our Lord, as we've said, repeats this form of prayer that will remind His disciples of the central or dominant elements of true prayer. It is a form that can be used as it stands, that is, rehearse it, repeat it, offer it as prayer to God as it is, or as I think more is the the primary significance to help the disciples frame 
their own prayers. Something I did this week, I didn't spend a lot of time doing this, but I can commend it to you, is look at this prayer, and then go and look at our Lord's Prayer in John 17, and see some of the overlap of the things that He's dealing with. The orientation towards God and the hallowing or the glory of His name. The, the kingdom orientation, His will being done as it had been done through Christ and yet things yet to be done. His praying for His people, not Himself needing forgiveness, but them being kept, kept from the evil one and so on. You find these things coming out even in John 17. Was, in one sense, we might say it was a certain form He used Himself if in some ways used differently. This is what prayer ought to contain. Many other things may be mentioned, considered, and requested than what we have here in the language, but all that we bring before God should be able to be tied into some of the petitions that are presented by Christ here. Now, the prayer is not unique in the sense that it bears no correlation to other, especially Jewish prayers. Um, the Jews had their prayers just as we have their, our prayers, and and there were rabbis that would give forms of prayer and, and sort of encourage their disciples to pray, just like John did, and as mentioned here. And there's, 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 there's correlation. There is overlap. If you were to look at some of the rabbinical prayers, there may be similarities. And some have made mention of this, that Christ here, His, his prayer that is given is not without um, influences from other Jewish sources and so on. But that's to be expected. It's to be expected that that would be the case. A good Jewish prayer would stem from the Old Testament and reflect the will of God. And so it's not easy to determine whether he is drawing from their prayers or there's just a natural overlap of certain themes. But what is unique about this form of prayer given by Christ is that it stands alone in terms of its brevity and its breadth. When you consider how brief it is, and yet the scope of it, and what it covers, there is no form of prayer quite like it. And it drives home a number of important issues as you reflect upon it. We might say, first of all, prayer is rational. It has a certain order to it. We are rational creatures. We're able to think, and so prayer is to reflect the fact that we are a thinking people. Our prayers should contain certain matters, certain subjects, and other things should be left aside. They're not relevant. We are to come before God thoughtfully with our rational minds. We are not necessarily required to read prayer, but we should have order to our prayer. And it's perfectly fine for us to write things down as a guide and a help for us to order appropriate prayer before God. Prayer is also reverential. It's not casual. You can see it from the language. There's nothing casual about the language of the Lord's Prayer, but neither is it professional. We have the imagery here of us as children coming to our Father, and that is important. Children are not to speak to their parents as they might to their peers, but on the flip side, they are not also to speak to their parents like they might come to a disagreeable judge. And of course, it's common today for some to use language in prayer in English-speaking world, they start using words like daddy in prayer. And they try to back it up, and they say, well, that's what Abba means and all the rest of it. But without getting sidetracked into that issue, I would just 
beg of you, if you've been influenced by that kind of thought, look at the prayers of Jesus Christ and see how He addressed the Father. There is no casual approach in His prayer. Father, righteous Father, holy Father. This is how He uses it. This is how He comes. And no one was more familiar with the Father as the Son. So we should follow His example before we run hastily into some novelty that some preacher tells you is a good practice. We are not to sense our acquaintance with the Father in such a way that we rob Him of His majesty. We must maintain the fact that He is God while all the times thankful that we do have this relationship with Him. So it's reverential, but it's also relational. We are able to say, Father, our Father, which allows for honesty. It allows for sincerity. It allows us to bring our hearts and our burdens, just as you find in the Psalms where people are saying, and I was just reading it with some of the saints this past week, Psalm 61, that when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. God's people, the best of God's people, go through seasons where they feel like their heart is overwhelmed and they can be totally honest to God. So, we're looking at these opening 13 verses under the overarching title, A Class on Prayer with Jesus Christ. And having looked at part one, which dealt with the first verse, we're coming to part two, where I intended to deal with verses two, three, and four, but we're only going to deal with verse two tonight. So this is the first part of the second part, <laughs> as it were. So because verses two through four, I've, I've entitled this point, this se- section of it, we've seen the chief example of prayer. Now we have the central elements of prayer. We've seen the chief example of prayer. Now we have the central elements of prayer contained in verses two through four. So, As we work our way through this, and as I say, we're just dealing with that which relates to verse 2 tonight, and we'll come back to this. Note with me, first of all, relationship. If you're looking at the central elements of the prayer given by Christ, the first thing that jumps out is relationship. Our Father, which art in heaven. Our larger catechism in question 189 asks, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And I'm not giving it all here, but it includes this, that it teaches us when we pray to draw near to God with confidence of His fatherly goodness and our interest therein. With confidence of His fatherly goodness. One of the mistakes we can make in our relationship to God is that we bring, we, we, we present in our minds a concept of God that we have learned from flawed parents. We're not to do that. If we in some way have been presented, and we all have. I mean, anyone here say I had perfect parents? I mean, I'd like to talk to you afterwards. I think you're wearing some kind of rose-tinted glasses as to your parents. I'm sure many of you had good parents, and I trust that you do reflect more on their qualities than the things that you'll be critical of, because that would be the right way to do it. But at the same time, none of us had perfect parents. But we have here, we have here one that is perfect, and we can call him our Father which art in heaven. 
This is a prayer for the children of God, our Father. You kids, if I was to go to your dad and say, call him dad or father or something, you would think it very odd of me to do that. You'd say, you have no right to do that. He's my father, not yours. And so it is with relation to the living God. You have to have a right to call him father. And the question is, what is the foundation of that right? Are you in the family? How do you know you're in the family? Are you saved? Are you converted? Have you been translated, to use the language of Scripture, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son? There has to be a movement, a change of position. You're born as children of wrath, even as others. But by a miracle of the new birth, by the confession of your sin to God and your repentance to Him, you will know yourself to be a child of God. And the Spirit will come and testify that you are such. Well, as we consider this relationship, note two things. First, it reflects union with Christ. It reflects union with Christ, our Father. We often think of this possessive pronoun, our. When we think of it, we, we, we kind of lump in all the church, like it's all the people of God that we include there. So it's all us Christians saying, our Father which art in heaven. And that's true, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But, but, there's a sense here in which it is more than that. It is more than a possessive pronoun that includes all believers, and that's it. It first and foremost, believer, I want you to get this, it first and foremost brings in the reality of our union with Christ. It is our Redeemer who repeatedly in His prayers said, Father, Father, Father. And he was able and had the right to come before the Father on his own merit. But we have not that same merit by ourselves. We have not the righteousness that he possessed, the obedience that he offered. We have not that. And so the first union, the first concept, the first idea of us saying our Father is that by saying that, we are including the fact that we are not coming to God alone, but through Christ and with Christ. We are praying as He prayed. And we are praying in the merit of Him who went before us and lived for us and died for us and rose again for us. And I might just say that understanding that is important. Sometimes Christians have, have either asked or inquired or practiced the habit of saying, My Father saying, my Father. And they'll pray that way. They'll say, my Father. Now, now, Jesus Christ did sometimes use that language. He said, my Father. But again, he was able to say that because he could stand alone before the Father and say, my Father, excluding any other company. You can't do that. You can't do that. So I'm not so sure that that language of Christ saying, my Father, is transmissible to the Christian. The Christian, by saying our Father, is not just including all believers. He is including Christ Himself and coming, therefore, to God with the understanding, our Father. If you can see Christ ever living to make intercession, are you leaving Him aside when you pray? Are you putting Him outside the room? Are you excluding his, the presentation of His blood and merit? No, of course you're not. 
When you say our Father and you come before God as your Father, Christ is right there, there in the very presence as you stand in the presence of God. And when you're saying our Father, it is with Christ. It's with Him and me that I present this petition. There's a sense, therefore, in which those who truly pray our Father, our, our, I should say, from the very commencement of their prayer, and we, this is something we leave often to the end of our praying. We, we talk about praying in Jesus' name. But when you say our Father, there's a sense in which you're commencing your prayer in Jesus' name. You're bringing Him into the very beginning of your prayer. You're including the necessity of His person and work at the very beginning of your petitioning. So it reflects union with Christ, our Father, which art in heaven. But it also reflects union with Christians. That much, of course, is obvious. It is a prayer that may be used in private use. You have every right to pray through these words and this language on your own. But every time you do so, you're being reminded that not only is it the fact that you're praying with others, but you're also praying for others. We are not alone. We aren't. We, we thank God we're not alone. <laughs> we have a lonely old path to glory if we were on our own, but we're not. Even this gathering this evening, we're not alone. We're encouraged. Never forget that, by the way. If you're kind of lying in your bed some Lord's Day morning, feeling the struggle to get up because of a poor night's sleep or some other thing, you're thinking, maybe I'll just miss whatever. Just, just think... You are robbing others of blessing. You being here before you even utter a syllable are encouraging other people with your presence. Just to see you here, it gladdens my heart to see your faces. It does. It does even some of those long faces that sometimes appear in the house of God. I'm still glad to see them, long faces or not. Glad to see you all. And we're all glad to see one another, I imagine. We, we, we look across, we see one another, and we're thankful, thankful they're there. Because, and again, sometimes we get, um, we, we, we don't realize the importance of this until they're gone. So you're looking around, I'm looking around, and I'm going home this morning and counting up the families, oh, they're not there, they're not there. And, and because I've been struck with sickness or something else, and, and, I'm, and I miss them, I miss them. I miss the fact that they're not there. I'm going through in my mind the fact, oh, they weren't there, they weren't there. You know, I'm wondering, hoping they're okay. Some of them I'm aware of that what's going on. But you, you miss their presence, that's the point. So when we pray, we are taught by our Lord Jesus to say, Our Father, which art in heaven. And I think if we would keep this in mind, it would help us greatly in terms of even how we relate to one another. We are not alone. And our prayers we offer in this language, our Father. That is, even that Christian that you may be at odds with is included right there. You may try to exclude them, but you have no right to. When you say our Father with every genuine child of God, they are included in that. And what I'm not talking here about kind of universalism, that everyone who actually prays this word, prays this language, is included there. I'm talking about those who truly know the Lord. 
And among those that truly know the Lord, there may be differences. And some of those differences may be very strong and felt very keenly. And we're inclined to struggle to be in the presence of such or to speak with such or to have any sense of love or appreciation for such. But as soon as you say, our Father, you can't exclude them. You can't. They're included. They're included. When we ponder that then, it helps us to, I think, softens our hearts in the hardening that can set in. When we exclude people and cut them out of our lives, the Lord's Prayer brings them back in. It brings them back in. Do not underestimate this relationship, the simplicity of this language, our Father which art in heaven. We are able, as Hebrews works out so wonderfully, to come boldly or confidently onto the throne of grace. Sometimes I think we would need to be transmitted to Old Testament times to understand just how wonderful these truths are. When their existence reminded them that they could not approach God, and they had no open access to God, and there was all this communication of, of the high priest entering in on the Day of Atonement once a year and presenting blood and everything else. But let us, therefore, let us come boldly onto the throne of grace, not a throne of judgment, of grace, that we may obtain mercy again, not judgment, but we obtain mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. It's to explained even more in Hebrews 10, 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We can say, Our Father which art in heaven. Entering right in. Like a child enters in before their father. So it is for us. Wonderful truth. So you have here first, in the central elements of prayer, you have relationship. More could be said but that will suffice for that point. Secondly, there is reverence. There is reverence. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I think that this may be the one that we struggle to fully understand, or it's the first one we stumble upon, where we, what, what really am I asking for there? What's involved in that petition? Again, our larger catechism, question 191, just a little portion of that, it says, we pray in this petition that God would, by His grace, enable and incline us and others to know, to acknowledge, and highly to esteem Him. We're praying that by His grace we be enabled and inclined to know, acknowledge, and highly esteem Him. The word hallowed in your New Testament is usually translated as sanctify. So it is to see God's name sanctified. Sanctified be thy name. Same word that's used in John 17, verse 17, when our Lord prayed for His disciples, sanctify them through thy truth. 
The same word that's used in Acts 20.32 when Paul says, Now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Or what we find Paul mentioning in Romans 15.16, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. So, In each of these instances, whether it's the prayer of Christ or the other passages mentioned, there is this desire, there's this inclination, this this teaching that God's people are being set apart. Use that language. They're being set apart. They're different from the world. They're being transformed by God. They're distinct from the unregenerate. And so when that language is used of God's name in the Lord's Prayer, it is a request to set apart God from everything else. Hallowed be thy name. Set apart thy name. And of course, when it's referring to the name, it's not just letters or the mentioning of His name. It's His person. It's His work. It's His attributes. It's all that God is. Set apart all that is true of God. Thus, it is a prayer for God to be distinct from anything that would compete with His glory. Let me say that again. It is a prayer for God to be distinct from anything that would compete with His glory. This is why he sets apart his people, in order to set apart his name. Because people by nature will not set apart the name of God. And so he has to set apart a people who will then do that. This is his work. And there are various things that we could think about in the reverence that is conveyed through this petition. Hallowed be thy name. For one, we might say this setting apart of God teaches us to fear God. This setting apart of God teaches us to fear God. Hallowed be thy name is a petition for the otherworldliness of God. It is for that to be understood, to be communicated, to be grasped and propagated. He's not like anything else. He's not like anyone else. God is God. This prayer, when you think about it, is quite a frightening thing, setting apart God, because when God sets apart Himself from others, it's not always something we would invite by nature. Let me explain. If you were to turn to Leviticus chapter 10... You will read the account of the offering up of strange fire by two of the sons of Aaron. And on that occasion, when they offer up the strange fire, well, it's at the end of chapter 9 and end of chapter 10, that account. On that occasion, they are struck down by God in an instant. They are apostate. They are falsifying the worship. 
They're disobeying God. They're denigrating His glory. And in Leviticus 10, verse 3, says, Then Moses said unto Aaron, Here's a man grieving. His two, two of his four sons have just been struck down by God without real any apparent warning. And Moses has to speak to the grieving father and says this, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. I will be sanctified. I will be set apart by all those that come near me. And if you don't, if you don't set apart God, if you try to make Him common, if you try to denigrate His glory, if you try to make Him like other gods, or in some other way you falsify the representation of God, God of mercy. So God glorifies Himself by the seriousness with which He handles the mistreatment of His name and His honor by the two of the sons of Aaron. They die before everyone. And at such a sobering time, Aaron can't even grieve as a natural father would grieve. He is called upon by Moses to carry out the business that would reflect the honor of God. He cannot show any emotion that would communicate that he was murmuring against God. It had to be an entire acceptance. And what God had done was right. So this setting apart of God teaches us to fear God. We are actually inviting this. We are inviting, we are, hallowed be thy name. Set apart your name, Lord. But also, this setting apart of God teaches us to fear no one else. This is the healthy aspect to a right fear of God. A right fear of God mitigates the tendency to fear others. It removes the fear of man. Fear not him that can destroy body and soul, but hear, fear him. Uh, hear, fear not, but fear him that can bo- destroy both body and soul in hell, as our Lord warned. So we are encouraged not to fear anyone but God. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, as Christians were dealing with a difficult day, you, you may f- put yourself right there. They're in a time wherein the world's against them. There's hostility toward those that name the name of Christ. They feel the pressure of that. They're tempted to relent in their loyalty to Christ. And in 1 Peter 3 verse 13, Peter says to them, Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Now, does that mean that if you follow that which is good, no harm will come to you? Obviously not. They're being put to death. They're being imprisoned. They're having things taken from them. All sorts of horrific things are happening in the first century. But the sense is, who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? True harm. Harm of eternal significance. That's the real harm. (laughs) The harm that matters is that which will extend beyond time. Not just scars to the body. Not just the taking of your life. Not just the robbing of your material possessions. Those things will come to a termination point. But harm that leads to, for example, if you deny me, then I will deny you before my father. That kind of harm is the real harm. And the scary form of harm. 
So who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good, if you keep going on? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But, do this instead, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, set him apart, and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. It's, it's, it's like setting him apart from everything else. Elevating his importance and significance and your loyalty to him above everything else. So when we pray, and again, this is just an overview. I'm just flying through this. This is just a fly through the, the petitions here. Hallowed be thy name. This is a prayer for God consciousness, isn't it? Hallowed be thy name. It's that men would know that God is God. People be aware. God consciousness. This is what believers lack today. Never mind the, the world out there. We, we lament that there's so little fear of God before the world. There's so little fear of God in the professing church. It, judgment begins here, beloved. It begins with you. Do, do you have a God consciousness? When temptation comes, do you fear the judgment of God? When you have to lament that when you fall into temptation, is there is, is this grief and this sorrow of heart, not because of the fact that you were caught or you had to confess it to someone, but be, be, because of the, 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 the impact it has upon your fellowship with God. It's this, it's this elevating of God, that God's what matters. Not what man thinks. Not what people think. Not, not what anyone else. All of that may have its place but to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, to pray, hallowed be thy name, is that there's this God consciousness that dominates the consciousness of anything else. This is a prayer for consecrated obedience. Hallowed be thy name. This gets developed later on, of course, but there's a real sense of consecration. Hallowed be thy name. It's consecrating. It's setting apart. That's consecration. Like the holy furniture in the, the tabernacle. It was said to be holy. You think, well, how can furniture be holy? There's nothing moral or ethical about furniture. But it was holy in the sense that it was set apart. It was consecrated for special service. And when you say, hallowed be thy name, you're indicating the consecration of your life and the lives of others before God. It's a prayer for the glorification of God among all His creatures. And as a prayer for, we might say even, religious awakening. You pray, hallowed be thy name. You're, you're praying for a revival. You're inviting revival. I, I don't have time. I would like to go through the book of Acts and show you the things that occurred that put the fear of God in people's hearts and resulted in religious awakening. One example is Acts chapter 5. When Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, again, like the two sons of Aaron, they are struck dead because they wouldn't sanctify the Lord God in their hearts, because they wouldn't say, Hallowed be thy name. 
and their covetous ways, and they lied to God and to the Holy Ghost. And when they are struck, great fear came upon the people. Thirdly, we have here as we look at the central elements of prayer, we've seen relationship, reverence. There's also reason. Reason. Thy kingdom come. This second petition builds upon the first. God's name is not to be hallowed to no end. The reason, at least in part, is the bringing in of the kingdom. That his kingdom might be further established and extended and reached out to other areas where it's not yet fully known. And of course, when you pray, thy kingdom come, in one sense, there is a certain implication that other kingdoms are at play. Thy kingdom, not the others. Thy kingdom come. Again, our larger catechism in looking at this petition, a little part of it says this, that we are acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan. We pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world. Evidently, then, it has an already not yet aspect to it. Thy kingdom come, there's a certain aspect in which it has come, it's come to you. If you're in Christ and you have eternal life, it has come to you in a certain sense, and yet there's still a need for that kingdom to come in other ways. So, we are praying for it. Sinners may press into it. They may be partakers of its benefits right now, as we are. We are. We, we enjoy the, what we're we doing right now. We're enjoying the word of the king. Aren't we? He's speaking to us. And we are dining on these spiritual dainties for our souls. And listening and wanting to hear from the master as he instructs and comforts and orders our lives. So we, we are in the kingdom and enjoying it. I trust <laughs> oh, are we enjoying it? Oh, may the Lord help us. Enjoy it. Your sins are forgiven, beloved. You're in this. Thy kingdom come. You are partakers already. So, again, so much could be said here, but what are we asking for? Thy kingdom come. First, this petition is a desire for Christ to rule hearts in salvation. It is a petition. This petition is a desire for Christ to rule hearts in salvation. Thy kingdom come. Now, boys and girls, listen to me. Boys and girls, if you pray the Lord's Prayer, and I encourage you to do so, when you do that and you say, thy kingdom come, you're praying for the conversion of your own soul. You need to submit to what that petition reflects. Thy kingdom come. The question it asks then, has it come to you? Have you come into that kingdom? Have you bowed to the king of that kingdom? Have you sought him in the confession of your sin 
and the receiving of him by faith alone. Boys and girls, this is important. You don't get into the kingdom simply by praying, thy kingdom come. You get into the kingdom by acting upon what it teaches. Get into the kingdom. Come to the king and participate with his his benefits. Now, your life may not be right now full of strife and trouble. The worst thing you have to do is deal with your siblings, perhaps. (laughs) Maybe the odd occasion when mom and dad give you some grief. But you're going to grow up, God willing, and you're going to face many trials, and you're going to begin to feel the weight of other kings, other kingdoms that come and appeal to you. And they will say to you, boys and girls, come into this kingdom. Join our club. Come into where we are and participate with us. And they're false, and you need to reject them. You need to run to Christ. Get into Christ. So when you pray, thy kingdom come, make sure that you've gotten in there and that you're in with Christ and with the rest of the people of God. So it is a desire for Christ to rule hearts in salvation. So we pray this, thy kingdom come. You're praying for your loved ones that are lost. You're praying for your neighbors that are lost. You're praying for them. You're, you're longing for it. You're longing for them to come in. Thy kingdom come. Not in some ethereal way, but in some real tangible way when souls come to the king. That's what you're praying for. This petition is a desire for Christ to rule hearts in sanctification. Thy kingdom come is a prayer for the holiness of the people of God. And while that gets addressed a little more specifically later on in the petitions, it includes this. Thy kingdom come is is like, well, if his kingdom comes, it, it changes me. I'm part of this kingdom, not the other kingdom. And it's clear from the Word of God that if you're part of this kingdom, not other kingdoms, that makes a difference. The Lord has put a difference between Israel and the other nations. And God's people are different. They will be different. They'll be sanctified. They'll be changed, transformed. They're not perfect. They're not perfectly holy. They'll not be what they are when they're glorified and before Christ in His presence for all eternity. But they will be changed. Their language and speech will change. Their attitudes and ambitions will change. Their whole inclination of their lives will change. Thy kingdom come. It's an awful thing that Christianity gets reduced to some little five-second prayer. And then people run off and live exactly the same way. And they're told that this is Christianity. Christianity is a kind of come to church, hear a message, respond and get your ticket, and then go back to the rest of your life, the way it was going on before. That's what it is. In many places, that's what it is. It's been reduced to that. And it's blasphemous. The king, when his kingdom comes, he changes his citizens. He transforms them. Are Americans different than the Chinese or other people of other nations that live under different different, let's say, rule and and reign. Of course, the government of your land changes you. It shapes you. The governance you're under makes you distinct. You have a, a, let me put it this way, even from different states. You know, there's some around here and they would have a certain concept of, let's say, freedom that others perhaps have lost or have a different idea today. And so you go from one state to the other and you see different ideas that exist. And, And what's happening, the governance shapes it shapes them. It changes expectations and how they live and what they expect and what they will submit to. 
And so it is with Christ you're in. It can't keep you the same. It will change you, transform you. Praise God. I don't want to be the same. Shh. Really? <laughs> Stay the same? Oh, Lord, please no. Sanctify me. Make your prayer real in my life. So this petition of desire for Christ to rule hearts and sanctification. So you're praying thy kingdom come. You're praying for all, all your brothers and sisters. Make them more like the Lord Jesus. Make them more like the King. So you're praying for. You're praying the same for your spouse. Thy kingdom come. Make them more like thee, Lord, and me. This petition also is a desire for Christ to rule hearts in service. Yeah, to rule hearts in service. Thy kingdom come. Kingdoms have work to do. There are things that need to be done. And the king has his servants. And you're a servant of the king. And so, as a prayer when thy kingdom come, how will it come? How is it ushered in? How is it extended? But by faithful exercising obedience among his subjects. When you say, it matters to me that I do what the king wants and what he's calling me to do, I will actually ask him, yes, I will ask, I, I feel like I repeat myself, and I do, but I'm not alone. I told you once, and now I tell you again, even weeping, Paul, Paul did the same, and he, you write things the same time, you know, he, he said this thing. So sometimes I preach the same thing. But you have it, 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 it so strikes me when Paul's, when Saul of Tarsus first petition is, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Lord, King, in dominion, has his kingdom. If he has his kingdom and I'm in it, the first question is, what am I to do? What am I to do? You have brought me into your kingdom. I have all the benefits of being a citizen of yours. My sins are washed away. I'm redeemed by precious blood. I have an advocate with the Father. I have all the rights and privileges of the sons of God. I have all of this. Now, what would you have me to do? It's the first question. Logically, thy kingdom come then brings that to reality. Make us people that serve. Bring service. Christian, at the start of 2022, evaluate what's your service. What's your service? Maybe there are things you're doing. Maybe you need to give up. Transmit your work somewhere else. Maybe you're not doing anything, and you, you really have no thing. You're not, I, I don't care what it is. I remember I used to visit, years ago, these two sisters that never married. And at the stage that I was visiting them, they, they, they barely could leave the house. And they still had a ministry. They wrote to prisoners. That's what they did. They, they would handwritten letters to prisoners. That was their ministry. And they would write. They would find out who's in prison and they would get their name and how they could contact them and, <laughs> and they would just write to them and share the gospel in the letters. That was their ministry. Never left the house but wrote letters to prisoners. I mean, that, that's, 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 that's the thinking. That's thy kingdom come. Here I am, housebound. What would thou have me to do? <laughs> There's still something I can do. Oh, one other Christian I know, you see all that junk mail that comes and they, they give you the envelope so you can put in the application or whatever it is and send it back to them. 
<laughs> it's like pre-stamped, pre-paid envelopes. Well, we throw those in the trash. Most of us throw them in the trash. And she, she, she thought, well, this is a pre-paid envelope. It doesn't cost me anything. She would put a gospel tract in it and send it back. <laughs> like, that's great. That's a good idea. You know, it's, it's like free transmission of the gospel. <laughs> who knows who will get it and how the Lord will use it. That's thinking. That's thinking like it. And that's what we're praying for. Thy kingdom come. This petition is a desire for Christ to rule hearts and society. We want it all. We don't want to keep it to ourselves, do we? We want all the society to be brought in. And broadening that, and just say this quickly, this petition is a desire for Christ to rule hearts and states. It goes beyond. It goes beyond. It's not to be kept to Greenville. It's not to be kept to South Carolina or to America. It has to go. It has to go. Thy kingdom come has to go beyond. Again, the Catechism includes in this petition that what we're praying for is, quote, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate. I was reading that. Wow. Yes. Pray, thy kingdom come to the extent the church is furnished. God's raising up preachers. Thy kingdom come as send the laborers, Lord. Thy kingdom come as Plant churches, Lord. Give us these things, Lord. Purge us from corruption and have the church even countenanced, that is, we're allowed to exist, and even maintained by the civil magistrate. Thy kingdom come. Oh, it's great, isn't it? It's a great prayer. There's so much involved. So, this is us. Listen carefully. This is us praying for missionaries. Thy kingdom come. It is us promising to support missionaries. I tell you, it's very encouraging to see, again, your giving and where it's going and how the Lord is using it and the sacrificial giving of this body. I thank the Lord. I don't have very much to do. The finances are here, but it's really encouraging at the end of the year just to reflect and see who's being supported and how. But that's what we're doing. Thy kingdom come, promising to support missionaries. And, listen, not only praying for missionaries, I'm promising to support missionaries but we are volunteering ourselves to be candidates for missions. Thy kingdom come is say, here am I, Lord. Here am I. Thy kingdom come puts ourselves there. Now, he may call you somewhere else. That's fine. But thy kingdom come is submission. If I can bring it in in some way, mission work or something else, then here am I, Lord. And we're praying of this, for this, of course, until Christ consummates all things. Finally, we have here, Thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. And this brings us to responsibility. Thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. I'm not sure if in heaven is a reference to angels or to saints. Are both. Those who are in heaven, we are told that they do his will in a way that we want it to be done on the earth. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. As those in heaven, yes, the angels, as well as the saints, perfectly glorified, obeying, in perfect obedience. 
So I don't know what the Lord is thinking about here exactly. But either one or both are examples of obedience. And in Psalm 103, David closes that psalm with four exhortations. You remember, Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So he, he sees their example. He said, let me enter into it to the same degree, I think, is what he has in mind. As they're able to bless, to bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength and do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of the word, may I bless him in such ways. See, the angels and saints in glory, they obey God perfectly, immediately, and joyfully. That's not you, not yet. <laughs> not perfectly. Not immediately. And sadly, not always joyfully either. So I want to just put three things before you here, because time is almost at a close. This petition, this is a petition that demands worship to God for His governance over all creation. It demands worship to God for His governance over all creation. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. His governance over all. Go and read Psalm 148. Can't do it. Don't have time. You read Psalm 148. And it demands worship. His governance over all creation demands our worship. He governs over all. It's all in His control. All the, all the winds and all the storms and the hoar frost that He casts, casts like ashes on the ground. All of this, everything, is under His dominion and control. And we worship Him for it. We worship Him. So we look at the rains and we say, bless God. He's in control. He sends the rains. Glad it's in His hands and not ours. Also, this is a petition that demands submission to God in His providence among all men. It's a petition that demands submission to God in His providence among all men. Thy will be done. Providential dealings. Yes, some of, some of those things that you sometimes murmur at or you're tempted to murmur at because it's hard. It's hard. When you get news that you're not well and you want to ask why, as if something unfair has been done to you. Or you watch a child begin to go spiritually astray. And you begin to murmur God's providential dealings instead of worshipping and submitting. You're murmuring. This is not the way. It's not the way. So don't murmur. Look at the children of Israel. See the murmuring. See the offense it caused before God. See what they lost in that murmuring. And run from it, Christian. Run from it. Run, run away. The very temptation to, to look at something and think unfair, not right, not just, bad timing, why me? All of that, all of that kind of spiritual sulking. That's what it is. Discontent. But when you say, Thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth, you're inviting His control and all these things. And I think if you learn to worship in the most difficult experiences of your life, it will liberate you. It will 
liberated you. And this is a petition that demands obedience to God for His commands to all His creatures. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Obedience. Obedience, Christian. Obedience. It's not up for debate. It's not, it's not for you to say, today it's inconvenient. <laughs> I would normally obey, but I'm struggling here. You see, that, that's not obedience. That's not obedience. When you live that way, when you become selective about your obedience, you know what you're doing? You're obeying in the things you would do anyway. You're basically choosing to obey and do the things I'm doing this in obedience to God, but you'd, you'd probably do it that way anyway. You're already inclined to do it that way. Obedience is where it's hard. Oh, and everything in you wants to do something else. You say, no, I'll obey to my own hurt. I'll obey. That's obedience. That's obedience. Obedience is Christ setting his face a flint to go to Jerusalem. That's obedience. Enduring the cross, despising the shame. That's obedience. We're to walk the same way. Oh. oh, there's a certain impossibility to this petition. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. That everything here would be as ordered and perfect as it is there. Come on. We're praying for what's impossible. But that's not you. The Bible has lots of prayers like that. Go and read Ephesians 3. See what Paul prays concerning your knowledge of the love of God. It can't be understood, but he prays for it anyway. So we're praying for the obedience. The worship and submission and obedience to God that he is due here as it is in heaven. Oh, we will lament our shortcomings. But actually, this, this is why, this is why we pray, isn't it? Thy will be done is a prayer, is a petition. What is that telling you? It's immediately recognizing you can't do it in your own strength. That's why it's a petition. It's not here's the command. Now go and obey. It is here's the command. Pray, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. And in that you're being empowered, helped to do, otherwise you cannot. Oh, may the Lord help us. Isn't it, isn't it great? Isn't it great? Shouldn't we pray over this more? Shouldn't we? Oh, may you gain an appreciation for the language believer and allow your own prayers to expand out of this brief, but very broad and all-embracing prayer given by our Lord. Let's bow our heads and seek the Lord. you're here tonight and you're not saved, if the kingdom has not come to you, that is, you haven't stepped in, 
Remember what the Lord Jesus said? Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in there at. That's the kingdom they go into. It's a broad way. It's wide. Many run that way. Is that the way you're running? Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. Are you in it? Few there be that find it. That might tell me that some of you might be outside. Only few find it. Have you found it? Are you in that way? If you need any help, be sure to let me know. Gracious God, I pray that thou wilt help us. Teach us to pray. May our understanding of what prayer is grow, mature, may it develop. Again, I ask, Lord, that this year would be a year of growth in prayer. That we would be oft found at Thy throne. A place of worship and adoration. A place of sincere petitions that are first Godward even before we consider our own needs. So teach us to pray in this place. Bless all that have assembled. Extend thy kingdom here, Lord. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Come to even one heart tonight, one soul. Meet with Christ savingly. Oh Lord, do thy work, we pray. Command blessings upon the seed sown. Be with those that go downstairs. Bless the food. Sanctify the fellowship before we part one from the other in this place. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the abiding portion of all thy people now and evermore. Amen.